you get into a taxi in Vienna, most taxi drivers will complain to you about something. I just say to them, go for one day to Geneva, go for one day to Paris, go for one day to London, and you'll come back and you'll realize this place is amazing. It's an amazing place to live. It's an amazing place to work. It's an amazing place to have fun. Even with this amazing cultural landscape, you look at it and you think, yeah, but they could do this and they could do this. So even in a place where it feels like so much is being done, many of us look around and see room. There's still, there's a wonderful expression in German, Luft nach oben, room, room above, air above. There's still air above. And it still feels like we can, we can all get better at what we do. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. And welcome to the first episode of season seven. On this special podcast, we dive deep into one of my favorite cities in the world. It's one capital that's so steeped in history, especially when it comes to art and design, it would take a dozen podcasts to fully explore. For most Americans, it's a place often overlooked, and its history is rarely taught in school. But when you tell any story about the birth of the modern world, you simply can't avoid this former imperial capital, Vienna. For most of you listening, you already know it as the former heart of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, far in the east of Austria, and is the home of musicians like Strauss and Schubert, Mozart and Beethoven, or where Freud invented psychoanalysis, or where artists like Klimt and Schiele pushed boundaries all part of the incredible turn-of-the-century art and design legacy the city is simply bursting with. Like many avid travelers, I had been to the Austrian capital a few times before this visit to see the major sites. But on this voyage, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper. Why now? For a while, it seemed like the city kept coming up everywhere I looked. There's a new Netflix TV show and a recent film about the famed tastemaker Empress Sisi. Rosewood Hotels opened their latest five-star hotel there, the city was marking the 150th anniversary of the World's Fair that kicked off the city's golden age. And once again in 2022, Vienna was celebrated as the world's most livable city for the third time in the past five years, according to The Economist. What I discovered on my week-long visit this April wasn't just a luxurious European metropolis, but a place chock full of complexities and contradictions, a place packed floor to ceiling with layers of history and grandeur and all in a country with a population smaller than that of New Jersey. Of course, being the Grand Tourist, I had the pleasure of staying in two fantastic hotels and then filled my calendar with as many experts as I could find. I was given a royal welcome by the family owner of one of the most important five-star family-run institutions. I met with the head of the city's incredible design museum, had a coffee at the home of an Italian-born curator who runs a design program at an Austrian castle, chatted about the soul of Vienna with a British expat, and caught up with a designer friend who has been working with some of the best workshops the city has to offer. But instead of finding answers, I found a lot more questions and an invitation to visit again and again to peel back even more layers of this most sophisticated of cities. But before I left for Vienna, I connected with Rada Aurora, the legendary debonair CEO of Rosewood Hotels. Their latest property is in Vienna, right smack in the heart of town, where I stayed for the first half of my time there. I wanted to ask Rada why they chose the city what someone like him would do with a free day in Vienna, and more. And what sort of, you know, was there a meeting where you guys uh, sat around a table and decided to to open uh, this location in Vienna? How did that first come about? 
Well, one one uh, one thing about Rosewood is that we tend to find opportunities where we feel that they complement the brand's DNA and the spirit and of of sense of place. Vienna is one of those destinations where it is not typically on your radar. In Europe, you normally tend to go to Florence, Milan, London, Paris, and Vienna. What we what we felt was that if there was an opportunity, we looked at several uh, partnerships there, and this one particularly interested us because it was uh, centrally located, but at the same time, it was a unique to the extent that. Uh, it would have been a, a smaller boutique property and where we could be able to deliver on our promises of uh, you know intuitive service and and so this 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 particular opportunity came about uh, six seven years ago when we started uh, looking at Vienna and and we fell in love with it and what would you how would you describe the interior to somebody or you know the hotel itself uh, so the idea was to create a destination a property that felt like an apartment uh, like somebody's apartment over the years and somebody who's collected the pieces of furniture and and the, and you know as we know vienna has uh, um, not just not just beautiful architecture but beautiful pieces uh through the mid century modern era especially and so what we've done is created this uh a unique a property that feels like a home. So you walk in, it feels like somebody's apartment that's kind of lived in. And I think we've real, realized the full potential of the property in that it's uh, it's really delivered on, on on what we expected it to deliver. And you mentioned that it's more of a boutique uh, property compared to other locations. Is it like in terms of size? Is it? Yes. So it's uh, it's uh, ninety nine bedrooms. Uh, they're very spacious, uh, ninety nine bedrooms and, and suites, and it it also has a, a unique dining room and also, uh, as I mentioned, a great uh, a spa, which is not really featured in other properties in uh, in Vienna. That's uh, it's very distinct in this particular property. Hmm. And what would you say is your favorite element of the hotel? Have you passed with the spa? You know, it's just when when you arrive at this property, it sort of gives you the goosebumps. It really, my personal favorite element of the hotel is the uh, is the lobby lounge, the salon, uh, Aureli, and and why? Because it has this sort of um, evocative murals by a local Austrian artist uh, Marie Hartig, and typical to Rosewood. And what we do is we work with local artists to deliver on something that's really sort of genuinely unique and authentic. Uh, and and really speaks to the the local destination, and so this particular uh, lounge has hand painted uh, palm fronds, flowers, and butterflies that pay homage to uh, Palmen House, which is Palm House, and uh, uh, Vienna's impressive steel and glass Art Nouveau botanical gardens. It's really quite unique, and when you when you sit there and and and, and enjoy your afternoon tea with the uh, you know with the typical Vienna Viennese uh, coffee house traditional elements, you really sort of feel that you're in in, in the in the thick of Vienna, in the midst of Vienna. And I was just curious, like if you had a free day in in Vienna, like what would you do? Like if you had a free Sunday. Uh, if you had a free day. So one thing that I've been wanting to do that I have not been able to do so far is to go and um, explore the nearby vineyards, uh, which are actually within the city limits. Mm. And, and you know, Vienna, of course, it's also known for its wine taverns called Hürigers uh, or, or Buschenskanks, as you, as, as you would say it, um, okay. where people uh, would come to eat, drink and listen to live music and 
and the custom really it, it's, it dates back to the uh, to the late 1700s and was actually inscribed uh, in the UNESCO index of intangible cultural heritage uh, a few years ago. So okay. um, yes, I would certainly certainly do that. And what would you? How would you describe this? The spirit of the city of Vienna to somebody? It's it's a crossroads of heritage meeting the contemporary, and and this is where we're located. Uh, mm. I would say that Vienna, architecturally beautiful, historically so much to offer, modernity. It has all of that, as you can see at Rosewood Vienna itself, and the destination that it's and where the and then the place is located, surrounded by churches, but at the same time. Uh, I think that uh, you know, you just—it feels like you're walking into a museum. The moment that you arrive into Vienna, you're actually walking into a museum, and you're surrounded with so much—not just architecture, but the fact that Beethoven and Mozart lived there and and lived in these some of these homes and and played in the bowels of Vienna. And mm. so there is there is um, uh, you know at, you at every street corner you're tripping into something historical. Can you remember the last thing you discovered, the last time you were there, that you discovered something new? Well, uh, well of course, there's this two things. First of all, there's a there's a Viennese the market that that takes place every Christmas. That that Christmas fair is incredible, um, and I discovered that that the year before, before when we were opening. I remember it being really cold, but still going there and taking it all in. And then then uh, last year, when I was standing at the rooftop and was looking at the architecture from above versus from below you see such uh, beautiful spirals and the finishes of the, on the architecture uh, of in Vienna and you and you look across the city and you think wow um, it's it's a it, it's 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 a dense city and you know everybody's very close to each other but you kind of welcome that because you feel that this sense, sense of community and there's a sense of togetherness in this in this uh uh, unique, unique city, and something that I've not seen anywhere else. And our, and our property, Rosewood Vienna, as I mentioned, with the rooftop bar, you can stand there, drink Austrian wine, and take it all in. If you could describe Vienna to somebody in three words, what would you say those three words would be? It's historically, well, it's two words, but it's 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 educational, it's uh, enriching, and it's magical. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design where architects, interior designers, and estates have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 350 global brands. With in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design, Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Piero Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Patrizia Urquiola. And as you'll learn from today's episode on Vienna, design is all about the intersection between expert craft, fantastic taste, and original inspired designs. And at Lumens, you can find thousands of incredible exclusives. The minimal lines of the sconces by Baroncelli could easily be found in any pre-war space in the city of Vienna. And pieces like the tour wall sconce by Atelier de Troupe couldn't be more mid-century modern perfect, something you'll find at the well-preserved coffee houses all over town. 
To find your own unique source of inspiration, seemingly ripped from the historic record of design, visit lumens.com. That's L-U-M-E-N-S dot com. My stay at the Rosewood didn't disappoint. Not only did the interiors hold up to the incredibly high standards the city represents, down to the customized monogrammed pillows, but the service was stellar. True story, when I left my iPhone in the taxi upon arrival, the team at Rosewood sprung to action and helped me track it down, racing around town in a car and driver to follow the latest ping using my Find My iPhone feature. Long story short, I recovered it safe and sound. One of my first stops in town when the dust settled and I stopped hyperventilating was the home of Alice Story Lichtenstein. This Italian-born curator runs what is known as Schloss Hollenegg for Design, an exhibition platform and designer residency program in a 12th century Austrian castle that has belonged to the family of Alice's husband for generations. As a lover and expert of all things design, on top of her duties at the castle, she also recently curated a show at Milan Design Week on glass and is preparing a major show of Loebmeyer creations at Vienna's Design Museum, the MAC, that opens later this month. I wanted to ask her why she's so fallen in love with the city, what makes it such a livable place after all, and why some of her favorite names in Viennese design have yet to get their due. And so, um, you know, there's a lot to, we have a lot to discuss today, but I was wondering if you could tell me uh, a little bit at first about um, the Schloss Hellenegg and and your connection to it and, and what it is for people that don't know it. Okay, so Schloss Hellenegg is a castle um, that spans approximately 800 years of history. So the first mention goes back to the 12th century and the last architectonical additions were made in the 19th century. And uh, it has been in my husband's family since 1821. And in 2015, uh, I started the program Schloss Hollenig for Design. Um, so we invite designers to come and spend time over the summer. They do a residency and we have an exhibition program. So we are a, basically we are a platform for emerging designers and we are an incubator. And we have a, a program which compromises exhibition, designers in residency, and design talks, which happen in July. And Schloss's castle in German, more or less. So yes. where is that in relation to where we are now in Vienna? Um, so uh, it is based in Styria, which is a very beautiful region further south from Vienna. Um, and uh, it is in the countryside. It's about an hour from Graz. So it's about two an hour, two and a half hours from from Vienna. So it's it's a kind of very idyllic place. It's a beautiful countryside. It's hilly. It's a wine region, uh, and the the real challenge at the beginning was trying to convince people to come all the way there to see uh, a design exhibition. But the place is amazing. Um, we lived there full time for seven years, which is when I started the program, and now I'm spending more time in Vienna. But it's still kind of home as well. So there's a part of the castle which is uh, private, which is where we have uh, normal things like kitchens and bathrooms and uh, children rooms. And, and then there's a whole wing which is made up of historical rooms. Most of them haven't changed at all or haven't changed much in the last 200 years. Um, and there are, in these rooms, there are all sorts of treasures from uh, Renaissance furniture to uh, Baroque uh, paintings and uh, Chinese vases, 
or Japanese Laker objects. So it is a kind of small museum of applied arts. And so what made you, after you had started to live there for a while with your husband, what made, why there? Why, how did that happen? It, it took me a really long time to decide, okay, I'm ready to live in a castle. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, first of all, I'm not a countryside person. And, and the idea of moving into a castle was absolutely daunting. So I was like, oh, I'm not sure. So we started spending a lot of time there and the holidays and the weekends. And then at one point I was like, right. I have to take over and I have to take care of this place. And um, when we moved there, I realized uh, two things. First of all, that the people in the area really identify with the castle. So they feel it's part of their identity. It's part of their history. They're really attached to it. And that made me think, ah, wouldn't it be nice to open it up for them at least once a year? So that was on one side. And on the other side, you know, when you when you live in a place, you only you kind of get a bit blind about the beauty of it. And and inviting people is always wonderful because suddenly they go, oh, my God, this place is amazing. And everyone that you invite sees a different detail. And I realized I need to have people coming here the whole time because it's good for me and it's amazing for them because they really enjoy it. And um, so I just happened to ask Misha Traxler, which are Austrian designers, and I was like, well, would you do a residency in Hollenig? And they were like, sure, why not? And I thought, well, if they're willing to do it, then there'll be other designers who will be interested. And that's how it started. And once I invited the first designers in residence, which were Misha Traxler and uh, Dean Brown and Doso Fiorito, after that, I was like, well, OK, now if they come here and they produce a piece for the, for the castle, then we need to present this piece. So we have to start doing an exhibition. And and that set the whole ball rolling. And the good thing is I didn't quite realize what I was doing right at the beginning. So I just threw myself into it. <laughs> and I think that's always the best way to do it. Because if you start thinking about all the steps, then that kind of stops you. And then you just think, oh, my God, this is too complicated. <laughs> you're actually, you're not from Vienna originally. No. Um, but you, you know, obviously uh, you you live in Austria and you spend most of your time here. You're in, you're sort of embedded in the fabric of the design scene here. Um when did you first, uh, in the apartment that we're in now, like when did you first uh, start living here? Well, this apartment is actually relatively new because we moved into this apartment three years ago. Um, I have lived in Austria now for 20 years. So that's uh, not quite half of my life, but getting there. Um, so I'm Italian. Um, I've, I've lived in several countries before moving to Austria. And I have to say, I yeah, it feels very much like home now. Uh, here in here in Austria, because I recently read that um, Vienna's the number one was ranked the number one most livable city in the world. And why do you think that is? As someone who has lived elsewhere, but also, I think I think there's a really good um, there's a really good mixture. You know, first of all, it's a capital city, which means that there are international people. There is a certain grandeur. Things are done on a big scale. Uh, the Museums are amazing. There's there's a really wonderful cultural offer. Uh, there are uh, several beautiful music venues, so you can really listen to first class concerts almost every day of the week. Uh, there's a lot of uh, theaters. Um, culturally, it's really it's really active, and it's both traditional culture and contemporary culture. Um, so those are definitely things that that make it a, a beautiful place. It's small enough that you can reach pretty much everywhere 
either on foot or with public transport. Um, but still, there's two million people, so it's not it's not a, a small town anymore. Um, I think it's just, yeah, I think it's just got a really good balance between uh, you know having a lot on offer and and also just having a kind of relaxed, laid back. Uh, atmosphere and for example you only need 20 minutes to be outside in the woodland around it where you can actually do 10 kilometers hikes which i do Mm. every week oh wow okay when you came to this apartment three years ago before that did you have a place in vienna or no you were so when i first moved to vienna when i first moved to austria i moved to vienna and I lived here for two years. I started learning. I'd met my husband and I thought, well, my, what would be my future husband? And I thought, well, wait a second before I commit. I want to, you know, live in your country, learn your language, see what I think of it. And it wasn't love at first sight. <laughs> I mean, it was love at first sight with my husband, but it wasn't love at first sight with, with Vienna. It um, It took a bit of why do, why, why, do you, why do you say that? Is that as, um, a, because the, as an Italian, I guess? First of all, because I was moving from Barcelona, okay, where I was leading this kind of like, oh, I'm such an artist kind of lifestyle. <laughs> and um, because even if Vienna is a great city, the Viennese take a lot of pride in being a little unfriendly. Okay. Uh, so they're very scared of coming across as, uh, you know, too friendly. So okay. they don't like that. Huh. And okay. uh, so they tend to be a little bit on their... Do you think that's a remnant of the sort of imperial past of like, this is where everything has to be a certain way and and um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think, I think it's improving in the sense that the new generations understand that there's no need to be unfriendly, you know, to everyone in the street. Uh, but I think the old people just kind of like take a certain proud pride in that, you know, it's like, um, I don't know. I'm not sure what it is, but. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> everyone so I, I've talked to you so far has been extremely friendly, I guess. But, yeah, then again, no, no, no. I think, I think the people themselves, once you get into a conversation, they're absolutely fine. It's just this kind of like general unfriendliness on the street and uh well as a new yorker i can i think i understand that yeah and a general <laughs> unfriendliness and you know you go into a into a um cafe in a in a cafe and real typical viennese cafe and it's gorgeous and they will serve you really nicely but you're a little bit scared of the waiter because he's going to be a little bit gruff yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. he's the owner and he's the boss and you're right. just a tourist and right. even if you're viennese you're still like his guest, okay, his, you know, in his cafe. And if you were to have a, a, a you know, a friend in town, and you wanted to tell, give them three things that they should do, um, what would you say those three things should be? Well, my my favorite place from my very first visit in in Vienna is the Situation. So that's something that I still think is um, a beautiful architectural. Um, building and it's got the Beethoven frieze in the in the basement which most people kind of don't know about and they it's really well run as a Kunstverein so a artist association and they have uh, really great exhibitions and the ticket price is so cheap because it is an association so um, I think that's definitely still my it was my number one when I came here 20 years ago and it's still my one number one place I always tell people. And then next to it, there's the Nashtmarkt, which is the market, uh, which, yes, it's a little bit tourist, 
but I still think it's got a really nice vibe and you can great you can and get. what what is it exactly is I also it's heard a market about. okay uh, it's a market like an outdoor um, market yes okay. it's an outdoor market um it's got a lot of Turkish products it's got great vegetables um it is it has um a kind of uh secondhand market as well so Marche Pus on on Saturday morning so you can get fun things there as well and it's got a lot of really nice restaurants, small small places where you can have like uh, a nice lunch. So um, those kind of go together because they're one next to each other. Um, I love the seventh district. That's possibly my favorite district for going um, window shopping, finding presents. There's lots of small shops, traditional shops, and lots of small shops that have kind of like beautiful objects, not necessarily design shops, but just shops that take care of the kind of good quality products that they have. As someone who wasn't raised here that you've been like, now that you've been learning a bit about um, Viennese history, is there any particular part of that history, especially in art and design history, that maybe you think you've you've now learned a little bit now that you've lived here or you've, you've absorbed that um, you think is the most interesting? Well, I've through the Lobmeyer exhibition, I have absolutely fallen in love with um, uh, Oswald Hertel, um, who was an architect. Um, and um, yeah, I'm researching into that um, a lot. And uh, Stranad was another architect who was um, at more or less at the same time. What era were they both? Okay, so Oscar Stranad was um, at the turn of century. So he was born at the end of the 19th century. And he actually died fairly young in 1935. And my great love is at the moment is Hertel. Um, so Hertel was a pupil of Stranad and he was also born at the end of the 19th century and he lived until 1959. So the I would say it's it spans quite quite a uh, a big change in in style. Um, but they were extremely modern and and they really even if it was at the end of the of of uh, Hertel's life, he really um, gave a great character to the to the 1940s and 1950s as well. So, so I'm just there's very little written on him. Um, so I'm kind of like this is a period. I'm like okay, I need to find out more about this. <laughs> and what what did um what have is there anything here in the city that they've left behind? Well, so um the the Pruckel, which is just in front of the Mac, which okay. is my favorite. Uh, Wiener Cafe. So okay. I suggest that you go and pop by tomorrow. Okay, I will. I, I hadn't realized. So it was. it's always been my favorite Wiener Cafe from right from the beginning, from my very first months in Vienna. And and then suddenly clicked because I was looking at all these uh, um, Hattel, uh things and suddenly I was like, oh my God, the Prukel. And I was like, oh, of course he designed it. So um, and it's still it's still very much it hasn't changed that much. So you can still see a lot of his lamps and a lot of his design there. And what would you say is the I mean, obviously, it's it's of course, it's like a touristy cliche to talk about the Viennese cafe and cafe culture is kind of a lot of it comes from here. And what we think about cafes and all that stuff. Um, But now that you've lived here for quite a while, um, what would you say is today a defining characteristic of a Viennese cafe that you wouldn't get in well it's the fact that you can go in sit down and no one is going to chuck you out so you can really take your time you can order one coffee you can order five 
Um, but you can just sit there with your book or with your newspaper and have a really long chat or just sit there on your own. Um, and that's something which is quite unique. Yeah, you, it's again, it's this thing about having the time to just be there. And, uh, and I think that's something which doesn't happen in a lot of other places. I mean, I know in Italy, it's like you finish your coffee, move on and go away. You know, you drink a coffee standing in Italy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would never sit down in, in a bar. And most of the cafes here, you're, you can also, a lot of them, you know, offer food yes, too. Yes, of course. You can they're, eat and... They're uh, kind of diners and they're kind of like the the equivalent, the American equivalent of like a diner in a yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, that's true. In a way, yeah. in a way, it's quite, it's quite similar. And then the other thing which I think uh, people um, don't realize is that there's, they have lots of different styles. So they're not all the same. So everyone will have their own favorite one because they like the way the tables are or they like the lighting or they like where it's placed. So, you know, they're not all kind of done in a, in a standard way. Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Anne Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Ann Sachs. The brand opened its Portland, Oregon factory 30 years ago, realizing a vision to produce the finest handcrafted tile, showcasing modern, timeless design. Ann Sachs' latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs, a key element to the design of any kitchen, bathroom counter, shower surround, or if you're lucky, home bar. With the company's incredible experience as a foundation, Anne Sachs is offering a curated assortment of the world's most premium stones, stone mosaics, and accompanying slabs, as well as dimensional stones. And this September, the company will open its third slab gallery in New York's Long Island City, after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. At these incredible one-stop destinations, you'll be able to work hand-in-hand with their design associates on everything surface-related. For more information on any Ansax tile or stone, or to find a showroom near you, visit www.ansax.com. Even though I had visited the Mac Museum in the past, it remains one of my favorite places in Vienna. And the cafe that Alice had mentioned, Cafe Prukel, is right across the street. It's the unofficial hangout for the museum, and its 1954 renovation is still almost completely intact, and it's a must-see. And the food is equally as preserved in amber, with all of its traditional glory and strictly mid-century style of presentation. After some potato salad and a coffee at Cafe Prukel, it was time to visit Lily Hollein, the director of the Museum of Applied Arts, the MAC. I met Lily during my first trip to the city when she was the co-founder of Vienna Design Week. She also hails from a family filled with art and design connections. Her father was the famed Austrian postmodern architect, Hans Hollein. And funny enough, her brother is Max Hollein, the director of the Met Museum here in New York. The Max sits on the city's Grand Ringstrasse, the famed ring road that was developed by the emperor starting in 1857, replacing Vienna's medieval walls. And the museum itself, a marvel of the age, was built after another proto-design museum, London's V&A. I wanted to ask Lily, a native Viennese, why so many elements of the city's golden age of the late 19th and early 20th century still have such a powerful sway over the city's culture to this day. So the creation of the Mac was inspired by the V&A Museum in London, and it sits on the Ringstrasse. 
built during this sort of incredible time of expansion for the city. What was going on in Vienna at the time that made the founding of it so needed? Well, obviously not enough in the sense of uh, developing uh, crafts and developing uh, skills in, in design. So uh, the founding director, Rudolf von Eitelberger, traveled uh, to the V&A and was totally obsessed with the idea uh, to have a museum of this type uh, in Vienna. What did he do? How, how did he, before he was the first director here? Uh, he's an art historian. He was an art historian. Yeah? I mean, I, I think he simply sat in front of the emperor's office day and night until he got the museum. And uh, uh, and that was uh, also partly connected. The, the building that we are sitting in is uh, 151 years old. The Mac itself is a couple of years older. It had been in a different location for the first years, but it was um, founded after the example of the Victoria and Albert Museum. And then uh, another milestone in the development uh, was very soon the World Fair, the Weltausstellung, uh, World Exhibition in Vienna 150 years ago. Ago. And that, uh, on one hand, contributed uh, strongly to our con- to our collection, especially also to the Asian collection. And uh, and what's very interesting about the founding director Rudolf von Eitelberger, uh, he was a really modern and modern thinking man. So not only founding a museum with an exemplary collection, so a collection that serves to train people in their taste, in their skills. Uh, and the building is pretty much the medium is the message. Uh, the, the, the building itself uh, contains all the skills that at, at that time you would want to teach. Uh, and talking about teaching, where we sit now and uh, one floor up uh, is where the Kunstgewerbeschule used to be. So the building hosted both the museum and the school uh, at the time. It was the school where Gustav Klimt and his brother studied. Um, yeah, today the school is our neighbor in the in the block. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, it's it's still a strong collection, connection. But what I was about to say about Rudolf von Eitelberger is he was a really modern and visionary uh, man. And he took advantage of the world being present in Vienna during the World Exhibition and uh, held the first ever global art historian congress that took place in the MAC 150 years ago. Oh, wow. Um, and what, what would you say was the, the material culture or the design culture of Vienna at the time when, when that World's Fair was happening? Was it, was it uh, you know, just an age of explosive growth? Because I think that at, around that time, there was a lot of growth in terms of, you know, industry and cities in the empire and um, new architecture. And is that fair to say? It's almost hard to imagine what a turning point that must have been. If you imagine that the, the Mac was the first museum to be built on the Ringstraße. So Mac is... Uh, uh, is older than the Kunsthistorische and the Naturhistorische, for instance, which you wouldn't maybe perceive that way if you, if you drive along uh, the ring. Uh, but I mean, the whole wall surrounding Vienna was taken down. They were uh, 
I mean, this was city development in such a radical way. And so, I mean, architecture was in full bloom uh, and, and there were so many possibilities to try out ideas, materials to, to have. And then, of course, uh, to get influences uh, also uh, talking again about uh, something like the World Exhibition uh, with with an international background. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, Vienna was, um, especially Vienna around 1900, was uh, a melting pot and a cultural uh, platform for people coming from so many different parts of Europe with with uh, different cultural influences and and sort of grew together here to to yeah I I would say uh, a very unique uh, Viennese uh, style and I'm I'm wondering like as now that you are in you know in charge of this museum and you obviously must speak to people that come and to visit all the time. I'm curious. So from, from the feedback that you get from them, what kind of, um, what do you think resonates the most with people that, you know, come to visit? What do what, what kind of things do they see here that they react to either in maybe a collection or even the building itself or, well, what what makes me really proud is that uh, we are a museum that uh, offers uh, something for everyone. <laughs> uh, but uh, but of course, if you come as a tourist, uh, uh, again, I would always recommend the Mac, uh, and I did before I came into the, the, that position, is because you have uh, such a wide span view on on cultural development uh, especially also in 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 vienna so you have uh, we have a beautiful klimt uh, drawing we have the sketches for for uh, the stocklet fries in brussels and uh, it's beautiful to see the handwriting of klimt where he specifies which stone in the mosaic should be of which material so i i think i find it a very touching uh, uh, piece uh, you have the whole tonnet history where where furniture design moves towards industrial age, uh, the industrial age, but we have, uh, um, yeah, we have a fantastic baroque collection, historism, Renaissance, of course, Biedermeier has a strong influence. Um, and then we have with our design collection so many contemporary topics. Uh, so, I mean, what people love uh, about the Mac specifically also is uh, a very unique approach that Peter Neuve, my pre-predecessor, took uh, in the 90s when he invited uh, artists like Donald Judd, like Jenny Holzer, Barbara Bloom, uh, Franz Graf uh, to to work on our uh, exhibition and period rooms. Uh, and, uh, and for instance, Donald Judd was asked to do the Baroque collection room. And I mean, of course, at first, Donald Chad like, was saying, like, why me? Baroque. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's my favorite. It is one of my favorite rooms. So uh, this is something that uh, uh, specialists come for. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I'm, with, with, uh, with Mac, you, you get so many insights on 
the development of the Jugendstil of uh, of Vienna 1900 in in very different approaches. As I said, from Klimt to the furniture thing, we uh, own the archive of Wiener Werkstätte, and that of course was one of uh, the super strong influences. Yeah, that was one of my questions for you. Is the sort of Wiener Werkstätte has this sort of hold on history and on Vienna, and it, it's endlessly fascinating, and and it's always going to be rediscovered. And anytime anyone visits, like the Neue Gallery in New York, they you know those pieces are always uh, the most outstanding and the most interesting. And the gift shops are filled with you would say reproductions, maybe. But what is that? Obviously, it's it's hard for me not to ask you a question about that here when we're in Vienna. Like, what do you think that those pieces have? why they have such a strong um, connection to Vienna and to history in terms of like why they're never really out of the conversation. Well, it is cultural heritage. It's DNA uh, of uh, some kind, maybe. Uh, and of course, I mean, there were there were times uh, in the 70s, 80s, uh, no one was really interested in, in you can steal furniture. Yeah, and 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 this, uh, of course, this this rediscovering, as you said, the uh, Wiener Werkstätte, you can always add something to the story. And uh, we we closed or we had an exhibition on on display two years uh, uh, ago about the the women of the Wiener Werkstätte. And if if you dig a little deeper there, it's it's so fascinating, and it was such a such a brilliant show on only if, if you look only at the patterns uh yeah you you can get lost in that archive yeah. <laughs> oh i'm sure um you know you ran the the uh design week of vienna for for many yeah for many years i was curious you know of all the capitals of europe and all the major the cities in europe what do you think vienna vienna's design culture today in the city you know, as it is today, what makes it unique? Like what makes, how do you compare and contrast uh, the sort of that, that spirit of, of design culture in Vienna compared to say, you know, anywhere else or. I think uh, Vienna's design culture still is at its best when it's uh, sourced from, from many different sides. Uh, and when when I founded Vienna Design Week with uh, my two colleagues uh, Thomas and Tulga uh, sixteen or seventeen years ago, actually there was not much going on in in Vienna's and Austria's design scene, uh, and uh, we didn't want to make a local festival. Uh, we believed in uh, that it's important to to link uh, local designers to an international audience, colleagues, manufacturers, but at the same time to get international people here to work with what is an enormous heritage of the city, that we have so many manufacturers, that we have so many skilled craftsmen in super exotic crafts. They simply survived. And that's maybe something very specific about uh, Vienna. I mean, there's, there's this uh, nasty saying of... Uh, um when when the world comes to an end uh, i'd rather be in vienna because then it it will be 15 years later um 
That's that, that's not completely <laughs> untrue, I'm afraid, uh, because yeah, Vienna has a certain resistance to to trends and fashions. Uh, so we sometimes tend to oversleep things here. Okay. Uh, but uh, then we jump on the train a little later uh, and have kept uh, certain precious uh, pieces over the decades. And uh, and when we started uh, Vienna Design Week at that time, we still had so many of the small shops in the in the center of the city that uh, that would sell super specific products but they are all gone by now uh, yeah. yeah is there any um i'm curious if i were to have an afternoon to go shopping in vienna what would you for something in the design realm or maybe even not what would you is there anything specific here that with your eye you you would say that someone like me would would love to see what something to bring home uh, is always uh, uh, the little Lilliput Pralines uh, by Altman and Kühne. They come in uh, in boxes that have the shape of tiny furniture, and uh, it's covered in Wiener Werkstätte designed paper. So, of course, as the director of the Mac. Uh, this is something that I would recommend because it unites Wiener Werkstätte furniture and fantastic pralines. Oh, amazing. We, we, we will open a show in summer on, on, on Loebmeier glasses who have a strong connection with the Mac because uh, the Loebmeier family uh, actually really was uh, using the Mac, uh, the museum to train themselves to get connections to designers uh, this is something that you will see in the show but the fantastic thing is the shop is still there you can just go and uh, and buy glasses uh, by Loos and Hoffman but also by Martino Gamper, Max Lamp uh, uh, and uh, Helmut Lang actually uh, so uh, there is uh, there is uh, contemporary designers uh, that uh, that uh, go on with uh, this history, and uh, yeah, and and uh, I I'd really go look uh, look for for these uh, very specific skills to work with certain materials. Uh, so many of, of of these companies have uh, roots that they were deliverers to the court and exist until today. Vienna keeps getting ranked as the most livable city, so. You know, from your own point of view, like, why do you think that is? As a born Viennese and someone who who really uh, spent uh, the largest part of my life here, I did that uh, with total conviction. I, I, I love uh, Vienna and I enjoy Vienna because uh, given the size of the city, it is big enough to be a small metropolis, but it provides a cultural program that you wouldn't find in many, many other capitals. So it is a city of culture, which I per, uh, personally really enjoy and and consume. Uh, I, I, I spent my weekends in museums and in theaters. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and at the same time, I mean, you, you can take your bike, you can take the subway and jump into an arm of an old arm of the Danube River and swim there. We 
we bathe in drinking water. We are so privileged, yeah? and I hope uh, that that will last uh, for uh, some time. That uh, we have these resources of the Wienerwald uh, surrounding the city. So you have the woods, you have uh, uh, so many recreational areas uh, really nearby. And at the same time, it, uh, yeah, I would dare to say an open-mindedness. I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, not, uh, not everyone will agree with me. But uh, it's the same thing with the grumpiness that they say about Viennese. It's not true. It's, it's a different kind of charm. But uh, once you grooved into it, you will really enjoy it. <laughs> Before we return to the program, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. Fort Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. The luxurious pieces are customizable in color, size, and shape, which is why a global list of top architects and interior designers specify them for their clients' interiors. Founded in 1996 by artists Janice Provisor and Brad Davis, Fort Street Studio is world-renowned for its suede-like, hand-knotted wild silk and wool silk blend carpets that combine traditional techniques with inventive textures and modern, sophisticated aesthetics. In 2021, Rizzoli published the studio's first book, titled A Tale of Warp and Weft, that chronicles 25 years of adventures in carpet making. For more information, visit fortstreetstudio.com. After ending my stay at the Rosewood, I transferred from the latest hotel to one of the oldest. Found right across the road from the State Opera House, this family-run five-star hotel is the stuff of local legend, the Sacher. Every day you'll see a line for the attached cafe going out the door, rain or shine, where tourists patiently await their turn for a bite of its famous chocolate cake. Once I got settled, I met with Alexandra Winkler, whose family owns the Sacher Hotel and its sister locations in Austria. Our interview took place in the small but incredibly elegant Rota, or Red Bar, at the hotel. Just the night before, I sampled all of the classic Austrian dishes there and can easily proclaim it as the best schnitzel I've had in quite some time. I spoke with the gracious Alexandra about the wildly successful Sacher Torta business that today ships all over the world, the history of the grand hotel that's had guests from every walk of life, including JFK, the late Queen Elizabeth, and just about every celebrity who has ever passed through town, and how its most famous owner, Anna Sacher, was a hard-driving woman ahead of her time who had a penchant for cigars and French bulldogs and who made the hotel the absolute center of social life in Vienna for decades. And tell me a little bit about um, the history of this hotel, because obviously, you know, speaking about uh, this restaurant, uh, it goes way back. So I'm wondering if you could give us a, a sort of a brief history okay, of so the I'll, hotel. I'll try to do <laughs> the big points very short. So everything actually started in 1832. At that time, Franz Sacher, he was 16 year old and he was an apprentice at Count Metternich. And the executive was chef was off duty and they asked Franz to create a cake because Count decided to have guests. This Franz Sacher took some chocolate, some eggs, some marmalade, and he created the Sachert cake. This is how everything started. And the big luck for us was that he was allowed to call it Sacher cake, not any other name, and that everybody really loved that cake. Yeah. 
Um, he had a few sons, and one of his sons was named Edward. He founded this place in 1876. Before he used to be in Paris, in London, he was uh, very uh, much into the gourmet business. He had a traiteur shop, yeah? so he really traveled the world before he came back here in uh, 1876. Uh, he managed this place together with his wife. She was called Anna Sacher. Unfortunately, uh, he passed away very early. So uh, Anna Sacher had to take over the hotel to run it by herself. And she did this very successfully until 1930. And I heard that she was quite the, the character. She was an amazing woman. Yeah, I really would have loved to meet her personally. I mean, she was... Uh, Today, I would say she was an entrepreneur. She was a real businesswoman, yeah? She was the person who made this hotel really famous, yeah? She loved to have nobility around her, famous people from politics, um, art, music, uh, economics, yeah? She really knew how to do that and how to network and how to bring people together and how to be talk of town. When she took over the hotel, you know, women were not really running a business at that time. It was really untypical. And she had to fight for that. She had to fight to get the permission to run it. And she was extremely successful in what she did. Yeah, She um, was very close with her staff. Yeah, uh, So she knew what they want, which problems they had. She was caring for them. She was, um, how shall I say, she 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 was a she, she she came from a butcher's family yeah and she was she always was like smoking working class in a sense yes but she was you know she was smoking cigar yeah, she <laughs> had a deep voice she um, was very clear in in her commands i have to say what she what she wanted um, and really yeah she, she she was an institution let me say it like this <laughs> <laughs> and um, what do you think what was the city like back then? I mean, what was that was such a period of growth, right? We're talking about the late 1800s. Um, that was like a real most of the things, lots of things we'll be talking about on the podcast, like the Mac Museum and the Ringstrasse and all of these things were built around that time. Um, what part of that culture and that 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 time in Viennese history that, you know, sort of helped shape the hotel as it is today, do you think? Well, I think, you know, she had a lot of famous people who came here, as I already said. I think many deals happened to be here. Um, she asked all these people when they came here if they could give her a photo. Yeah. Um, they dedicated it to her. They signed on it. Um, she even had... <laughs> She had a tablecloth, yeah, where she used to have the signatures of the people and she used to stitch them. Oh. There was a funny story, I think, where you could see how she was thinking and how she, she, she did her business. She wanted to have the signature of the emperor on this tablecloth. And uh, so she asked the girlfriend of the emperor, who was named Katharina Schratt, and she was a friend of Anna Sacher, if she can ask the emperor for a signature which she did and then she took this handkerchief on which the emperor signed gave it to anna Sacher, and she put it into the middle of the tablecloth and stitched a little crown around yeah so i think 
by knowing this, you can see she organized the things she wanted to have. She yeah. would have been really good on Instagram, yes. I think, probably. Yes. <laughs> For sure. For sure. So I also heard that you, of all the things that you, um, of all the traditions that you still uh, hold up here, you're still doing the tablecloths with uh, with people's signatures. Is that right? Yes. We not only, you know, as Anna Sacha said, she had a picture, but she also had the tablecloths and we continued her tradition. So um, if somebody, a VIP guest is leaving, we kindly ask him to sign on the tablecloths, uh. which we afterwards stitch as well. So I think we already have now six different <laughs> tablecloths um, with really famous people. And I think this is something unique, which I have never ever seen at any other place before. Wow. Yeah. And how many signatures do you fit on a single tablecloth? Um, I would say it's between 150 and 170. Oh wow! Okay, so it's a very big tablecloth. It's a very big tablecloth. <laughs> yes. And do you are do you, are you able to display them here? Um, we displayed the original one and two others, mm -hmm. but apart from that, we don't have enough space. You know, this is one of the problems. This hotel was not built as a hotel; it grew over the years, and we are within six different houses. Um, if I had I wish I would make this house a little bigger, but unfortunately, this is not possible. <laughs> so we are missing space to really display all these uh, tablecloths. And, and if you had to describe the hotel today to someone, um, you know, we had dinner last night, and you and you you mentioned that you know you've worked you worked in New York uh, many years ago, and you know um, you know you've studied uh, this industry very well, and you know it you know it like the back of your hand, and. How would you describe to someone if you went to uh, um, any city in the world and they, they said, what is the Saha? Uh well, the Saha is for me the only family-owned five-star hotel in Vienna. It's an iconic and unique hotel, which has always been a hotel since it was opened. So it's really, if you come here, you get a really authentic feeling of Vienna. Um, it has... A wonderful location because we're just opposite the Vienna State Opera, two minutes away from the Albertina Museum, a few minutes away from the Museum of Fine Arts. So culture is very close to us. Um, we have fabulous rooms. We uh, are working together with Pierre Franchon, the interior, in, the internationally known interior designer. We have an excellent service. Um, we just got a prize. We were voted as the this restaurant where we are sitting right now was uh, voted to the restaurant with the best service in Austria. Just got it two weeks ago. Um, and I think, you know, whenever you come here, you feel that there is a family. Yeah? Each piece of furniture, each fork, each curtain, everything is selected by the family. Wherever you see a picture, yeah, I mean, we decided where we should put it. Should it be lower? Should it be more left? Should it be more right? Um, so if you come here, you somehow enter our private home, I would say. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, and how, how, is, how challenging is it to be sort of a family-run five-star hotel today? Well, you know, I think... We try to do as good as we can. Yeah, um, we are a big family. It's um, my mother used to do the hotel. It's my husband. It's my brother. It's his wife. Um, of course, we can feel that there are chains who have a big marketing, but we always try to be faster to do the extra mile 
Um, and we are part of the leading hotels of the world, which is uh, a distribution network of family-owned hotels. Um, and I think we have a very prosperous future in front of us. Yeah. And are you, are you from Vienna originally? Yes, yes, I was born and raised in Vienna. Oh, okay. Um, and I really I love this city. For me, it's it it you know it offers so much. For me, it builds a bridge between north and south, between uh, tradition and modern, between big and small. Um, it has an enormous offer of culture. Um, the amazing architecture. If, if you walk around, for example, the Ringstraße, there are so many things you see. Um, you have a lot of green spaces, for example, the Prater or the Vienna forests, which are not far away, or the vineyards in the 19th district. Yeah. So the quality of life in this city is something really special. And uh, Vienna was also last year, it was voted as the city of the, with the best quality of life. So I think this is something we can be really proud of. And, and I'm curious, you know, in Vienna, the names of history and the artists, are they're not just in a museum. They really are kind of surrounding you with interiors and architecture. Is there a particular artist, uh, a Viennese artist or, or creative I, I would, person that you really say, identify with? I would say it's Gustav Klimt. Yeah, oh. I'm fascinated by him. I mean, he is the very famous artist, the end of 19th, beginning of 20th century. Um, he was also the co-founder and director of the Vienna Secession. It's a movement of artists who wanted to be different than the artists you know so far. And he found his very own style yeah, of doing things. Um, so you, as already mentioned, you see the Kuss at the Belvedere. At the, everybody knows this, but there is a special exhibition going on in Vienna for 300 years of the Belvedere, where you see how Klimt got inspired. Yeah. So what did he see from other artists and how did he then use it in his art? Yeah. Or for example, in the Vienna Secession, you see the Beethoven Fries. Yeah. He was especially doing this for the Secession. Yeah, and the secession building is also incredible. Obviously, it's probably the number one stop for anyone who, who loves architecture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, of course, we have to speak a little bit about the soccer torch um, directly, because it's not just uh, a cake that you make here at the hotel, but it's a whole business. It's a whole business. Well, we used to do it at the hotel really for many years. And it was so funny because when I in the morning came out of the garage to go to the hotel, you could smell yeah, the chocolate. <laughs> it was amazing. But due to the fact that we are doing so many cakes now, it's about 365,000 we're doing every year. We had to move our manufacturing a little bit outside where we have more space. Um, but coming back to the cake, I think it really was an innovation when it was done because by the time when it was founded, um, cakes were done completely different. They were part of a Baroque tradition. So you can imagine them like a wedding cake. Yeah, so really big. And the glaze of the chocolate was done with um, butter, uh, with, with uh, ice or with jam. Yeah, but chocolate was not used to cover it. Yeah. So the innovation behind that cake was that at the Sacher cake, first of all, people used chocolate, yeah? And chocolate 
of course, conserves and um, you have a much longer shelf life with the chocolate. Yeah. So Franz, uh, Franz and Eduard Sacher, they both shipped the cake and already at that time they had between two to 400, which they were shipping. Yeah. And this was really something you never ever experienced with a cake before. And, and as as we were also talking about before, you don't does you don't refrigerate it. You keep it no, in room I temperature, mean the, which the I guess helps. The perfect temperature to to really store it is room temperature, okay. because the chocolate just tastes different than yeah. yeah than if you keep it in the fridge, and uh, you have to have it. I have to mention that with uh, whipped cream, but not uh, no sugar added. Yeah, no just sugar. Normal whipped cream. Uh, okay. Um, and you know, I mean, we're still doing it. It's 34 steps, how you create it, oh, all okay. done by hand. Oh, wow. And we still use the secret recipe from Franz Sacher, um, which he created in 1832. What role do you think music has to play in in the city and in the culture here? Like, why do you think it, it has such staying power here? I mean, if you think about, you know, so many different composers, think about Mozart, think about Strauss, yeah? They all had to do something with Vienna, yeah, yeah? something yeah. important. Yeah. Um, so Vienna without music, that's that's not possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have the New Year's concert, which takes place, yeah, every year. Mm. Uh, it's broadcasted all over the world. Uh, you have the Vienna Philharmonics. You have the Vienna State Opera. You have the Musikverein. Yeah. You have the Konzerthaus. You have in Salzburg the Salzburg Festival, which takes place in the summer, in the Easter. Uh, you have the Mozart Week in January. So I think Austria in general is very, very linked to music, to culture. And in terms of, uh, we, you know, we, we, there's a lot of talk, of course, about how Vienna is a livable city. And why do you think Vienna is keeps getting this recognition as being a livable city? What do you think it is about? As I already mentioned, I think it's the combination of art, of history, of culture, of safety, of green around you, um, of clean. I think Vienna is a very, very clean city. It, is, it yeah. has a wonderful um, medical caring system. Yeah. So for me, if I had a choice, if I would like to leave the city and go somewhere else, never ever. I just love it here. <laughs> My next guest is Bodo Sperlein a German-born designer living in London who has a unique perspective on the Viennese design scene as he's designed for various legendary brands there, including Lovemeyer. I connected with Bodo for my suite at the Sacher Hotel to chat about his first time in Vienna, his admiration for the city's workshops that go back to the imperial court, and more. Uh, when was the first time you ever visited Vienna? I, it's quite a while ago. It's around 30 years ago, first time I was in Vienna, because obviously from Munich, it's not too far away. So you, it, it's a, you know, it's it's not like a very exotic place to visit. But on the other hand, it's, it, it's also a place which is very East. <laughs> it has all those Eastern influences, which uh, were intriguing and interesting. And, and, you know, obviously you are in Vienna and Viennese are, are very particular people, you know, they have a certain, you know, in comparison to Germans, they're different. But I, li I like their sense of humor, which is very, very similar to the English humor, which I really appreciate. Yeah, it's much darker. And, and 
And I love what I love about Vienna as well is the appreciation about still craft and skill. And that, I think, fascinated me mostly about Vienna and still does to this day. You have a lot of still workshops um, in town, whereby in other big cities like Berlin and other, you know, there is a, it's difficult to find those sort of workshops still working. And why is that? Because people might not necessarily buy hand-produced products anymore or don't have the interest in that type of product or uh, don't appreciate that type of product anymore. However, in Vienna, it's more people have those products at home and treasure them, and then sometimes they have to be repaired as well. So you would bring something in for repair or restoration and so on. And, and I think that's what's great in Vienna, that people still really appreciate old things, you know, and they um, that doesn't necessarily mean they live in the past, but they have the appreciation. And I think they get that from their family or from their upbringing. It's slightly different, I think. Yeah, It's, it's quite magic. It's, it's very unique. I think Vienna is a very, very unique place in Europe for that. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, one of the, uh, the design houses that you've worked with, um, you know, many years and for different projects is Loeb Meyer. And I'm wondering if you could uh, describe for the audience, you know, what kind of special place they hold in, in the hearts of, of the design community, because they are one of those names that um, uh, is so special. They're super special because Ada is still around, which I find already quite fascinating. And obviously this year, it's their 200-year anniversary. For brand to be around for 200 years is quite amazing. And when you actually look at the logo, it's one it, it's it's an amazing logo, which was designed 200 years ago. And you look at it and think, wow, that is actually a very contemporary-looking design. And when you dig a little bit deeper, I mean, with Lobemine particularly, I was very... Uh, pleased that we did get together and work together because they have a lot of, uh, they tick a lot of the boxes I appreciate about manufacturing and manufacturing companies. And one of the main, main, main sort of like uh, plus points was that they were the first company to uh, do an electrified chandelier and that was with edison and i thought wow that's like the moon landing so literally if you do a product with edison at the time i mean you could have probably chosen quite a lot of companies but he chosen lobmeyer to do that with and i thought that was an amazing story a lot of people don't really know about that but when i heard that i said wow that's an amazing story to have the other thing with lobmeyer is that they are incredibly quality driven they have a very good understanding what a product should be designed or should be produced for and it's very well produced that means it has a longevity it's not produced for a short period which again is very interesting because from a designer point of view i'm not very interesting designing so-called fashionable products. I find fashion a bit of a difficult word because fashion becomes quickly unfashionable. And with Lobmeyer, the the whole company is based around sort of traditional historical products, but also contemporary products. And I think their portfolio of contemporary products become future classics. And that is a very very nice feeling. So you know you're never going to end up on the rubbish heap, you know, because it's going to be sort of unfashionable in a few years, and it will also withstand the, the time because it, it it's so well produced. Like 
the lighting collection I did for them is solid brass, which is then hand bent, and you know it would be incredibly difficult to destroy, I suppose. You know, and and, and the glass can be replaced and so on. And uh, I, I really admire their. Uh, it's like a little fairy tale when you arrive at their 18th century building, and the workshops are sort of you know like bit disjointed one room is for this the other is for that and then you have to go to the second floor to see the wiring people and it's it's still it's it's really really interesting to work with companies like that and i'm glad there's still companies like that around and what i talked about before about vienna being very unique because of those workshops is because there's people still appreciating that and actually make it possible for companies like Globemeyer to survive, you know, and have a clientele. And I think Globemeyer has a great international reputation. And obviously, you being from New York, you know that that did the uh, Metropolitan Chandelier and the Met Opera, which I found very fascinating that, uh, you know, such an iconic piece has actually been produced by Globemeyer. And again, I didn't know that initially. And when I then found out, I said, wow, actually, they... They're doing a lot of very amazing pro and projects, and 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 when you go to Lobmai, they have this sort of like uh, list of names of projects they've done on a big wall, and you stand in front of that wall, and it's quite at all because you see, wow, okay, they've done that castle and that castle, and they've done that building, and this. So it's, it's it's yeah, it's it's a really hidden treasure. And what I like about Lobmai is well, they're not so loud. You know, they don't shout. They don't walk around and say, wow, we're amazing, we're amazing, we're amazing. I think the people in the know, they know they're amazing. And I think that's how they like it. It's, a, it, it's quite a Viennese thing as well. It's a bit sort of gentleman-like. <laughs> the, the bust of the founder is literally uh, part of the architecture of the Mac Museum. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. He's right. right Mr. Loebmeyer is right there mm -hmm. overseeing everything. You know, um, They are... They're sort of like a one sentence away from being mentioned at any time you talk about design in Vienna, whether whatever it is. Um, it is quite kind of magical to see. And then also just to pass by the shop, you know, which is like here uh, in the center of town. Yeah. If I asked if I asked you to describe Vienna to you, how what it means to you in three words, what would you what would you say? I'd say delicious stylish and sarcastic <laughs> sarcastic in a not in a negative way but it is it's, it's that sort of like you know it, it's almost like a slight schizophrenia <laughs> situation because they are quite sarcastic uh, as people they're quite funny <laughs> i know that that is that is a part that is probably more apparent to you as 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 a german person than to to an american although i have heard uh Austrians themselves um, speak a little bit about their sense of humor or how they view their own sense of humor. So it's it's funny. Yeah, you are you are the third person who has mentioned this kind of like peeling back the layers of of the culture here and of the people and of the history and how complicated everything is. Um but it's fascinating. It's sort of like everyone has a slightly different angle take on it, of course, but like there's definitely a common thread amongst uh, the different people that I've spoken to, whether they're Austrian or British or German or Austrian themselves. I mean, I, I, I'm 
as I said, you know, I, I really like Viennese. You know, I, I, I have really good friends, and I made good friends through work because a they have such a cultural understanding, and they seem to be a bit better educated. You know, on the cultural aspects. You know, they really know their things, and they're quite geeky to certain. If they like a subject matter, they go really deep. You know, which I think is really <laughs> great. So you end up having really great conversations. But maybe that is also the Vienna coffee house culture you know maybe stems from that people the viennese probably love to hang out and have little chats and you know in the past for well if you had a business card in the 19th century you would probably not put your address on but you have your address of your coffee house you know where you can meet that person you know during the day because people spend so much time in the coffee house discussing subject matters politics uh, gossip etc you know and i think for me being born in bavaria we we speak, I mean, I can, it's, it's, <laughs> I can understand them very well. I can understand a lot of the accents in Austria and I can understand the Viennese accent as well. And they sort of respect you a little bit more. They always say, oh, well, you're almost one of us, you know, because you're from Bavaria, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> Whereby they get a bit more shirty with people like, let's say, from Hamburg or from other German cities. <laughs> they go about like, oh, they're Piefkes. They call them Piefkes, which are very sort of like, but it, it, it tells you, Viennese are very, they also have a certain charm, which is quite—it's—it's it, it, a hard charm. It's not like trying to be slimy or something. You know, it's sort of like you know. But on the other hand, if you make friends with them and if you break through the whole facade and everything, and I think you will have friends for the rest of your life. They're very, very loyal. I—I I, I like that about the Viennese. While history is everywhere in Vienna, Austria does have a growing contemporary art scene. My next guest is Jasper Sharp, the director of Phileas an organization that started in 2014 that promotes Austrian contemporary art both at home and abroad. And this year, it partnered with the Austrian government to become state-funded. As a Brit who sees Vienna as his adopted home for many years, he was once the curator of contemporary art here at the Kunsthistorisches Museum, Jasper was the perfect person to explain to me the country's appeal, not just to the casual visitor, but to the contemporary art scene as a whole. We met at his organization's new gallery space to speak a bit about the complexities and promise he finds in Austrian life and culture. How did you end up in Vienna? As someone, you're as someone who uh, is you're pretty embedded here in the in the uh, contemporary art scene. How did you find yourself uh, living here? So I was uh, I was living in Venice uh, in Italy, just neighboring country to here for six years until 2005 so i'm kind of working my way through the v's basically i don't know where's next vladivostok or somewhere vanuatu <laughs> yeah vancouver uh i was living in venice and about two weeks before i was due to leave venice and move to new york to start my phd i uh, traveled up to austria and uh at a wedding a wonderful austrian wedding at one of the great lakes in austria uh i met this wonderful person. I waltzed clumsily over her feet all night long. Um, she still wanted to talk to me afterwards, which I figured once the, the feet waltzing had been done, that wouldn't happen, but it did. And uh, I made it to New York for about four months. I commuted every three weeks back to Vienna, back and forth, back and forth until it became financially and emotionally unsustainable. And then I moved here almost on a kind of whim. Uh, with the idea that I'd be here for a couple of months, and that was 17 years ago. And she's she's still my wife. Okay, so. well that's good. <laughs> uh, but you, when you did come here, I think or, originally you were working at the museum, correct? 
I or... was, uh, I, w I had worked at the Guggenheim for six years, my first job, I was 30. And uh, I came here basically with nothing to do. I called uh, a wonderful lady called Francesca Habsburg that I knew that I'd collaborated with uh, in Venice while I was living there. And she said, sure, come and work, come and be a curator at my foundation. So I arrived on February 13th, 2006, and I started work on February 14th. And um, yeah. And, and at what point did you join the Kunsthistorisches? So I started, I started talking to the Kunsthistorisches in around 2010. Um, so I did various projects for the first few years. I wasn't really in Vienna for the first couple of years. I traveled like hell. And it, I came to realize, I was wondering why Vienna, why I wasn't getting more back from Vienna. And I came to realize that I needed to commit to the city for the city to commit to me, kind of like anywhere. You get out what you put in. And so I slowed down the travel and tried to find some projects here to do. And the Kunsthistorisches approached me yeah, around 2009, 2010, and asked me to conceive of a program which would bring the art of today and kind of recent years, let's say the 20th century, into this wonderful old imperial collection of very old objects. Uh, and I spent 10 years doing that, which was amazing. And from that, once you committed to the city, like what, what did you learn from that uh, period? I, I mean, Vienna just is, you know, the greatest way I can describe Vienna is you, sometimes you see someone coming out of an apartment block and you get a little glimpse in what's behind a door and you just see this extraordinary courtyard with greenery and amazing architecture. And it's almost like a sort of metaphor for the city as a whole. There's a lot that sort of takes place behind closed doors. Viennese can be a bit grumpy sometimes. It's a wonderful kind of charming. They call it the Wienerkrant, and uh, it's charming. Can get a little tiresome sometimes, but not unlike many other places that we know around the world. And it was also learning German. Um, I speak more and more German, which is which is good. Uh, we're doing this in English today, but um, and yeah, I just things sort of opened up. And I discovered fascinating people, fascinating places, and that sort of began to peel away the sort of layers of the onion to understand what this amazing, so it was learning about its history, learning why some of these complexes and these, and these paranoias that still penetrate and permeate the city, where they came from, why they're here, why they linger, what perpetuates them. So yeah, it's, it's, it, it continues to fascinate. I remember when I was thinking of moving to Vienna, I called an artist friend who's a wonderful artist who lives and works here, teaches here. And I, I said, Hans, what do you think? Vienna? This is an amazing place, Vienna. There's so much to kick against. There's so much darkness. And I sort of asked him to sort of, you know, tell me more about that. And he said, you know, so much troubled history, so many troubled protagonists, imposing architecture, lots of sort of ghosts of, of glorious times and less glorious times, really fertile place for writers, composers, choreographers, artists, all sorts of people. And this really fascinated me, having come from Venice, which is a sort of chocolate box that almost defies you to be creative because it is the ultimate representation of human creativity itself. It really intrigued me to come to somewhere that was similarly glorious, but with an edge to it that you know, Venice has its nostalgia and its darkness and so on, but Vienna is incredibly unique, I think, in that respect. It has a certain melancholy, which I've always looked for in places I go to, but with a tremendous joie de vivre at the same time. And does, does the city kick back? The city's got a kick to it. Uh, the people have got a kick to them. Um, 
it's they're not always the most accepting immediately i mean there's some amazing huge-hearted people here they're often the people that spend a little bit of time elsewhere um very few people actually that i come across here are actually from vienna certainly from my world everyone seems to be from somewhere else even the austrians are all you know they've they've come here to study or you know um this has got a bit of a kick to it i mean i when i was very young i lived next door to an artist lucian freud whose family actually came from vienna and lucian once said to me that he he loved people who had a little bit of poison in them because it made them more interesting and i think vienna and I mean this very much as a compliment, has a little bit of poison to it. Its history is obviously tainted, um, as is pretty much everyone's history in the world, to add a disclaimer. Um, and this makes it a really fascinating place. It's, it, it, it bears its agonies. They're very open out. They're, they're considered, they're talked about. Um, the city of therapy is itself sort of constantly undergoing a very sort of public form of therapy. And I find it a fascinating conversation to kind of listen in on. Yeah, well, it also seems like from an urban point of view or a cultural point of view, like the empire is gone, but the the shell is still here. The architecture and the institutions and the palaces and the culture and the waltzing and everything is still here, even though everything else is, is not. So even though every place has history and baggage, there's something where here there's not a lot else, a lot else to distract you from history. Yeah, like, I mean, Bill Bill Bryson, the travel writer, once said that if an alien landed in Vienna, he would feel pretty sure that he landed in the capital of the world. Such is the grandeur, uh, and they and they built Vienna very carefully so that there's a lot of empty space in front of these big buildings, so that they feel even more impressive than in some other cities, like in London, where they butt up against other great buildings immediately. Um, yeah, the interesting thing about that history is a lot of people here have great nostalgia for that moment. Uh, and almost live as if nothing had ever changed. You, I mean, the museum I worked for has 798 employees. It was almost like the age of the empire had never actually ended. Other people are doing everything they can to eliminate every trace of that history. And that, that sort of tension between the people who long for those days that are now gone and the other people who sort of almost ashamed of them is itself a really interesting sort of cocktail. And, you know, for fans of art and design, when they come here and they absorb everything that we all would speak about when you come to Vienna, uh, when what do you think that they would realize after that first couple of weeks here, just as a visitor, if they stayed, you know, the first week, they're going to see all the museums, they're going to do all the shopping, they're going to they're going to go look at the architecture. I mean, I'll stop you right there just to see all the museums need. I mean, there's several months. <laughs> I mean, the density. I mean, one thing you have to remember is that the entire cultural landscape here of museums, libraries, opera houses, theaters was built for a population significantly larger than it is today. I mean, Vienna is one of the few major urban metropolises which has shrunk in size. I mean, it's, it, it's gradually, you know, pretty quickly actually catching back up to that em empire, imperial level, but it's smaller than it was. And you can have the amazing pleasure of walking into the Kunsthistorisches Museum at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, making a beeline straight for the single greatest painting that Vermeer ever made, which amazingly is not in Amsterdam at the moment for the great exhibition. And you can stand in front of it probably for an hour before somebody else walks into the room. That is extraordinary. So as many people as are in the city, you can find pockets of quiet in the most extraordinary places. One thing that I think makes Vienna 
completely unique. I noticed, for example, certainly in my world, in my field, when Vienna imitates the structures and models of bigger cities, of the New Yorks and the Londons and the Parises, it can occasionally show up its frailties somehow, almost, almost embarrass itself a little bit when it takes on these kind of, when it plays by its own rules, to its own strengths, it's utterly unique. So Lily Holline, some, someone that you've been speaking to, Lily, as part of Vienna Design Week, set up a series of walks through different neighborhoods in the city where she paired young designers with traditional handmade manufacturers in the city. And you can walk through the very center of town here in Vienna and find people making shoes, chocolates, ceramic, cutlery, guitars, um, all over the city, but even from the very center. And most major European cities, at least, these, they've vanished. Either they've outsourced or they're banished to the suburbs or to the countryside. It's all over Vienna. It's really remarkable, the making that still goes on here uh, and the passing on of traditions and crafts and techniques is, for me, pretty much unparalleled in the world. And so, you know, as someone who uh, knows the city so well, knows the culture pretty damn well at this point, um, when you're working with the contemporary art scene here in Austria, what is it the thing you you often are pushing not against but that you're the the part of your of the world around you that you're kind of like trying to massage or maneuver in some new way because if you're trying to are you do you need do they need help thinking about how they think about austrian art is it about how they fit in with the greater world of contemporary art. What, are, what is your main challenge here for this organization? Um, firstly, it's to get people to Vienna. Um, it's happening more and more, but for a certain generation, Vienna has been a bit of a blind spot. You know, for many years, when the Iron Curtain was still up, it was, was the last frontier. You were not on your way to anywhere else when you were going to Vienna, further east than Berlin. Um, so there are still a number of people. I remember Adam Weinberg, director of the Whitney in, uh, in New York, called me a number of years ago and said, you know, I'd like to come with my trustees. Could you put together a four or five days in Vienna for me? He'd never been in his life. He's director of the Whitney. And some, some of his most senior trustees, seasoned collectors, never been to Vienna. And they came and we had four amazing days. And on the last night, we were at the Black Camel having a schnitzel. And Adam stood up, raised his glass and said, here's to Vienna the best kept secret in Europe. And he was astonished. It was a sort of sweet, sour thing to say, and your heart sinks and, and flies at the same time. Um, so that's, in terms of other people, getting them here. Because when they're here, they're amazed by what they find. The density of artists, the variety, the variety of institutions, world-class artists just basically hiding in plain sight. In terms of what we try to do in the city itself, it's really just trying to get people to talk to each other. We you mean Austrians talking to one another. Yeah, huh. and just getting institutions, you know, this incredibly dense landscape of cultural institutions. It's really about trying to, you know, we, we part of what we see as our mission is to present an image of the country and this is projected out. And that requires a certain level of cooperation and collaboration between the main protagonists, which is not always, it's, it's, I think for me, it's a symptom of a slightly smaller country is that, um, you know, everyone knows each other and it makes for a more intimate and more familial, but also a slightly more, um, yeah, polemical environment sometimes where larger, larger cities or larger countries 
there are greater distances, there's a great, greater space between things, which allows for a little bit of, of breathing. We live on top of each other here, which is amazing, um, but it just means that communication often is the, is the, is the bit that suffers, strangely enough. And, uh, you know, you were, you were mentioned before the, the little quiet spots in Vienna, uh, the places you maybe, you know, that are not on the to-do list. Um, if you had, if you had a sort of a, 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 a Saturday with no responsibilities all by yourself, um, what would you do with the Saturday like that? Do you know what? It's interesting you say Saturday, because in somewhere like New York City, it would have to be a Saturday. The great thing about Vienna is it has a really forgiving human pace of life. I used to think that it was slow uh, because I came basically, I grew up in London and it took me a long time to realize that actually Vienna's not slow. Vienna's the pace of human life that we should all live at. London is too fast. New York is too fast. I'm always 15 minutes late for everything there. Here, I'll bump into a friend on the street five times out of 10, I have 20 minutes to go and have a quick espresso. That's never the case in a bigger city, for me at least. Um, so if I did have a quiet moment, which could be on a Saturday, but could also be on a Tuesday, I'd probably get on the tram, one of Vienna's unbelievable trams. And if you're lucky, you get an old one with a heated wooden seat and head out to Leinzer Tiergarten, which is the old imperial hunting ground. And you can literally walk for three hours without turning back. And this is within the city limits. In the summer, I would go to one of the amazing Heuriggers, which are these vineyards. Again, Vienna, I think, is one of the only cities in the world that has vineyards within the city limits. And you can sit out under the vines and eat food cooked by, often by the wife of the vintner. Uh, lovely. You can have roast pork or you can have all sorts of lovely vegetarian spreads and things. Just go and sit in the hills with a view over the whole of the city, high up in the vineyards. That's a pretty unique experience in Vienna. And that's when I talk about the sort of human pace of life, people take time to do that in the summer. It's a thing that people do. And not just on a Saturday, but on a Tuesday night, a Wednesday, a Thursday. People knock off work a little bit early. Got a pretty good work-life balance here. You can go at 100 miles an hour here if you want. You can go to all the bright lights, amazing clubs, theaters. You could be at a different opera house pretty much every night of the week. But you can also hide. You can write a book here. You can compose a symphony here. You can think here. You can lead a family life here. Um, we think of places like Switzerland being quite functional and quite boring. Vienna marries some of that functionality, a public transport system which works, a health system that works, a school system that works, gardens that are clean and beautiful and planted with flowers with an amazing edge. And one thing that I would say we try to do above all is to bring people to Vienna, not for its historical legacy. As much as we love White Horses and Sachertorte and, and Egon Schiller, we're trying to bring people here for what's, what's cooking right now and what's going to be known 20 years from now. Get, them, get people to see it now while it's still on the way up. Thank you to Fallon Nakmani, Kaylee Johnson, Young No, Sarah Natkins, and to all of my guests for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. And now, a little bit of piano straight from the Rota Bar at the Sahar. Auf Wiedersehen.
Thank you.